Well, hey, you're listening to the Resonate Church Monmouth Sermons Podcast. Whether you're a part of the Resonate family or you're just a friend of ours tuning in, we're so glad that you're here. We are a church here in Monmouth, Oregon that exists for the college campus and our broader community. So if you'd like to learn more or get further connected, head over to resonate.net slash Monmouth. Otherwise, hope you enjoy today's sermon. Last week, uh, I'm sorry. Hopefully, you can uh, you can catch up here. But we're gonna we're gonna blaze through this, and we're going to recap what Ben taught us last week. So uh, we saw against God's will and design for His people that Israel demanded that God give them a king. We saw this in First Samuel chapter eight. Uh, They wanted to be just like all of the other nations. So Israel looked down and said, they have kings to guide them. We need one too. So rather than the Lord being their one true king, they wanted a mortal king to guide them. So thus far we have Saul. And after Saul, there comes David and Solomon and a huge succession of kings. There's 42 to be exact. And after Solomon's reign had ended, uh, Israel was split into two kingdoms rather than one. So if you remember the, the map that Ben had on the screen, there was the north kingdom, which is Israel, and there was the south kingdom, which is Judah. Israel was eventually captured by the Assyrians, and later on, a couple hundred years, uh, we see that the south Judah was captured and sent into exile in Babylon. So Babylon had conquered Judah and had brought God's people into captivity for 70 years before we open our Bibles and talk about the Babylonian exile, we need to understand two things about this. That, number one, the exile is not an injustice. And number two, it is not shocking. So we see in scripture that God warns his people against idolatry time and time again, dating all the way back to the original Mosaic law. If you've heard about the Ten Commandments, that's what I'm talking about here. One of the first Ten Commandments was that you shall have no other gods before me. That was a command to God's people. Have no gods before me. You see that in Exodus chapter 20. So the cyclical story of rebellion to redemption continues. And to to answer the question, why was Judah sent into exile? We need to understand this too. So the very, very brief answer to this is because sin. (laughs) But the longer answer is found in the biblical historiography. And in the biblical historiography, there we read that the promise to the Israelites concerning the land was not unconditional, but depended on the obedience of the people to God's law. It's a long sentence, I'm going to say it again. So we read that the promise to the Israelites concerning the promised land was not unconditional, but depended on the obedience of the people to God's law. And Moses states it like this in Deuteronomy 28. This is a command from the Lord saying, if you guys sin against me, this is going to be your outcome. So Deuteronomy chapter 28, it won't be on the screen, but it's pretty short. So uh, God is saying to the Israelites, if you are not careful to do all the words of this law that are written in this book, the law of Moses, that you may fear this glorious and awesome name, the Lord your God, then the Lord will bring on you and your offspring extraordinary afflictions, afflictions severe and lasting, and sicknesses grievous and lasting. So God's taking sin pretty pretty dang seriously here. Uh, So from the original Ten Commandments up until now, all of the Old Testament prophets prophesied judgment upon God's people, and all of the, the prophecies came true. So things aren't looking good for Israel. Things aren't looking good for Judah at this point. So the people continue to worship idols and commit all kinds of terrible sins. And after a brief time of prosperity during the reign of David and Solomon, it just continued to, to get worse and worse. 
So Judah lasted about 150 years longer and knew some good kings like Jehoshaphat, uh, Hezekiah, and Josiah. Ben taught us this last week. Uh, but the majority of the people sinned grievously against their Lord and their neighbors, despite the continuous admonitions of the prophets. So for clarity, here's what we have seen throughout the story of God thus far. We've seen that God repeatedly warns his people against sin and the outcome of sin. We see the majority of kings had failed, in turn leading Israel away from God's design for them. And God, in his perfect justice, has to punish his people for their lack of repentance. So here we are. This is our context now. The result. The result of everything we just went over is that Judah is taken captive by the Babylonians as God had warned them. And this is where we're going to spend a majority of our time. So if you guys have your your copy of scripture, uh, we'll be in Jeremiah chapter 29. If you don't have your copy of scripture, pull out your phone. It's also going to be on the screen. Uh, It's pretty lengthy, so bear with me. (laughs) Uh, And if you don't know, Jeremiah is one of the Old Testament prophets. Uh, He witnessed the Babylonian captivity, but wrote this letter to the exiles from outside of the Babylonian exile, just so we're all aware. So Jeremiah chapter 29, we'll start in verse 4, and we'll go through uh, to verse 14. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters a marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me, and when you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Okay, I know this is a fat chunk of scripture. Uh, I'm going to break it down for us into five parts so we can easily understand what, what, what the heck is going on here. Um, so one, we see that God owns it. He sent his people into exile. So Judah was captured, but God is saying, I'm going to own that. I let that happen. I am sovereign. I am in control. It's not Babylon's fault. It's my fault. <laughs> Number two, God commands the Jews to live out ordinary lives as if they aren't in exile. Number three, he says to seek out your city's welfare. So seek out Babylon's welfare. Number four, he says, don't listen to the false prophets. They say, I'm going to rescue you soon, but I will not. And number five, the truth comes out. God says, after 70 years, I will, in fact, rescue you. So now that we can easily understand the storyline of what we just read, uh, we can dive into the three key points that are crucial and applicable in our current season's of life, and all of us sitting in this room have one thing in common that we have a home. We reside somewhere, whether it's here in Monmouth or Independence or Pullman, Dingman. Good to see you. Uh, we all have something in common. We reside somewhere. We call somewhere home. 
So let's go back to to verse five and and we'll dissect this a little bit and then we'll get into our key points. So verse five, God is commanding the Jews to build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Okay, so understand the context of the Jews here uh, that are in Babylon. So they, they were sojourners in the land that they were brought to, but they were not welcomed in. They were discriminated against, they were resented, they were met with a lot, a lot of hostility, and among the world's most undesired places, Babylon would have sat near the top for even a faithful Israelite. No, it, it, it sucked there. Like, they didn't want to be there. That's the point. So God is asking them to to live as though they aren't in exile, just live out ordinary lives. And it, it seems pretty unethical when, when they're ma- met with hatred. And Babylon was not a place to settle down and raise children, but they're gonna be here for 70 years. That's what this scripture is telling us. Um, so why are, we, why are we spending time on this? Like, hopefully we don't feel like we're in exile in Mammoth. Uh, hopefully we don't hate Mammoth. And hopefully we don't despise this town, but if you do, check out Taco Tuesday, it's great. <laughs> Just joking, it's is a decent at best. <laughs> you can hate me if you want. Uh, on the flip side, maybe you do hate Mammoth. Maybe you do hate the place where you live. And if you're somewhere in between, uh, just think of any place that you despise and imagine living out the rest of your life there. And imagine that God is clearly asking you to love the city that you so desperately want to leave. So the question is, do we stand by waiting for the next anticipated season? Do we long for the next season, hoping that things will get better and easier? So no, we do not. Clearly, God is telling us in Jeremiah chapter 29 that no, we do not stand by and be idle. And this brings us to our first point. God is telling us in verses five through seven that the best thing for our city is for us to desire God to be at work in it. So the best thing for our city is for us to desire God to be at work at work in it. So again, God is telling the Jews they will remain citizens of Babylon for a long time, but what God is not saying is to stand by and be idle until he comes and rescues them. And the language used in verses five, six, and seven are actually very similar to the creation account. So when God created Adam and Eve, he told Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply. He says to tend the land, to live pretty much ordinary lives. So this is, this is the point of the scripture that we flourish when we sink our roots into our current context and dare to believe that fruit can grow even here. So we flourish when we sink our roots into our current context and dare to believe that fruit can grow even here in Monmouth, Oregon. Obviously, we have it way better than the Jews in Babylon. So if God's design for a flourishing people remains the same in the midst of suffering, then surely it must right here in Monmouth, Oregon. So our current context is not a pit stop and the moment it becomes a pit stop or we, undesi- or we don't desire this place, that's when we become tempted to become idle and stand by. There was a, there was a guy, he, he died a while ago, but uh, his name was Sam, Samuel Rutherford. He was a Puritan letter writer and he once spoke of God as a gardener and himself as a plant. And he says this, The great master gardener, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, in a wonderful providence with his own hand planted me here, where by his grace 
In this part of the vineyard I grow, and here I will abide to the great master of the vineyard think fit to transplant me. So what if we too saw our present place as a garden or a palace? Not because the soil feels rich or the furniture looks, looks elegant, not because mammoth looks elegant. Maybe, maybe it does to you, I don't know. But maybe it's because our father, the gardener, has planted us here and Christ the king dwells here. So what does mammoth as a garden or palace look like? It, it means tending our gardens and tending our palace for our one true king. Gardens don't just grow by being idle. Courtney and I have a garden in our backyard and we found that out very quickly. It's like we actually have to do something. We have to water it and take care of it. Like sometimes two or three times a day when it's 100 degrees out. It's the same thing. They need water. They need good soil. They need daily care. And Monmouth has good soil if we choose to look for it. Within Monmouth, look for the places that need to be watered. We look for the places that need daily care. Then we can watch the master of the vineyard grow his small garden into a grand palace. So practically, what does this look like? It looks like setting weekly rhythms. Like your neighbor across the street, maybe he's going through an awful divorce right now. Invite him over for dinner. So maybe you met a student on campus and he, he's a struggling alcoholic or he's struggling with addiction. Invite him to village. Like you Tyndale guys, like you guys are ballers at Smash Bros. Like have a game night, invite people over. There are messy lives all around us and God is waiting to turn a dead garden into a flourishing vineyard by his grace. That's what God's saying here. And God takes it a step further. If we look at verse seven. So God doesn't just ask us to do ordinary things that need to be done solely for our good, but also for the sake of everybody else in our proximity. So again, if we look at at verse seven, God is saying, seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. That is such a profound command by God. It's like, how profound is it that God asked the Jews to pray for the welfare of the city that hates everything God is for? John Piper, if you don't know John Piper, he's a, he's a pastor, pretty famous. Uh, he puts it this way. He says, ask for great and good things to happen for the city. Ask that they happen by God's power and for his glory. Never lose sight of the ultimate good that the city needs a thousand times more than it needs material prosperity. Christians care about all suffering, but most of all, we should care about the eternal suffering because that's the greatest danger every city faces. So straight up, like when was the last time we looked upon our cities and we like wept for our cities? When was the last time we prayed for our cities? When was the last time we petitioned to God saying, God, would you just simply show up here? And God is also saying in verse seven that loving our city is actually a way of loving ourself. He says, in its welfare, you will find your welfare. In its peace, in other words, in its peace, you will find your peace. In its happiness, you will find your happiness. So seeking the welfare of our context means more than having general goodwill towards the surrounding culture. It means living so that knees would bow before a holy God. That is the best thing for Monmouth, Oregon, or wherever your context is. We see a story later in the Bible. Um, there's a man named Daniel who comes on the, on the scene uh, he lives in Babylon, but he is a, a man of God. He worships God. And King Nebuchadnezzar was the, the king at this time. And Daniel was 
uh, was forced to bow between King Nebuchadnezzar, but Daniel actually refused. He said, no, I don't, I don't bow to you. I don't bow and worship to you, King Nebuchadnezzar. I bow to a holy God that is much more powerful than you are. And that's, what, that's the point of this, is that Daniel sought out the welfare of Babylon. He said that the best thing for Babylon is that God gets the glory, not you, King Nebuchadnezzar. And moreover, Daniel knew that um, if, if he refused to bow before King Nebuchadnezzar, he probably would die. He would probably get killed right on the spot. And something else actually happened. Like it actually, his, Daniel's faithfulness actually like bore fruit. So King Nebuchadnezzar eventually did declare that, oh my gosh, the God of Daniel must be the one true God. So it bore fruit. And Daniel knew that, that even though he might he might be killed, he didn't care because he knew that his citizenship did not lie in Babylon, but it actually lied in a heavenly realm at the right hand of God. And that brings us to our second point. So if we read Jeremiah chapter 29, we can clearly see that we are citizens of another kingdom. We are citizens of another kingdom. So we're gonna gonna go back and reread um, verses 10 through 14. It's really quickly. It says this, For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. So again, we see God telling his people that they're going to remain citizens in Babylon for for 70 years, and then he makes a promise to bring them back to the kingdom that they belong in. And if you didn't know, this is, this is scripture. Uh, this scripture is a prophetic word looking toward King Jesus and the redemption that he will bring forth, the salvation that he will bring forth for us as Christ followers. And we know this if we look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17. And, and Peter uses this language uh, for, for Christ followers, saying that we are exiles and we are sojourners on earth because our, uh, our, we don't belong here. We belong at the right hand of God in heaven. So 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17 says this. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you are ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So God promised the Jews to bring them back to the kingdom they belong in, and Peter is telling us the exact same thing today. So he is telling us how we ought to view our time of exile on this earth, to have a holy reverence of God, reminding us that we have been ransomed from perishable things we once looked upon to give us hope. And we've been ransomed by the blood of Jesus. So this is, this is the sobering and humbling reality of this scripture, that Monmouth isn't our true home. God is. Your hometown isn't your true home. God is. Grandma's house isn't your true home. God is. Uh, Tim, Tim Keller was a, a renowned pastor, pretty, pretty famously known. Uh, he, he passed away a few months ago, and his last words were, were this. He said, there is no downside for me leaving, not the slightest. 
I'm ready to see Jesus. Tim Keller got it and so should we. Like Tim Keller knew that his, uh, his citizenship did not lie on this earth. He knew that his citizenship lied in heaven because Jesus has ransomed him by his blood. And we sing about this truth all the time as well and we're, I think we're going to later after the sermon. Um, we sing lyrics like, when the age of death is done, we'll see your face bright as the sun. We are all sojourners in a foreign land until Christ calls us home. We're just asked to steward our context in a godly manner until then. So Jeremiah chapter 29 is looking ahead. It's a prophetic word of our future citizenship. Oh, there's, a, there's a book called Faith for Exiles. It's written by David Kinnaman and Mark Matlock. And the entire, the entire premise of this book is how we are to be resilient people and exercise faith in a place where we are exiles. And they call uh, our, our world a digital Babylon. And they take the stance that we are discipled by the things commonly found around us Uh, In this case, it would be technology or our cell phones. So the term digital Babylon seems to be pretty fitting for our current culture. And they say this in regard to combating passions of the flesh as exiles in a digital Babylon. Uh, So they they took a survey of a wide demographic of people, people of all ages, and they, they found this. This is what they said. They said, we discovered that people don't learn to follow Jesus simply by having lots of great head knowledge about him although having the right beliefs matters. Experiencing Jesus is found along a relational pathway with family, friends, and other people who love and experience Jesus. We are loved into loving Jesus. So no matter the time period, the culture, the context, what catastrophe is going on around us, the same timeless truth applies to us. Surround ourselves with people who love Jesus because we are loved into loving Jesus. And again, to, to put this practically, um, man, this is, this is why we have community and this is why we have villages. This is why we have missional homes. This is why we have godly marriages. And this is why we hang out with each other until 2 a.m. and then regret it the next day because we have to wake up at 6 a.m. to go to work and then we do it all again. Like, this is the point. We get to look forward to our future citizenship in heaven because we get to see a glimpse of it on earth. We call it heaven on earth. We get to see a glimpse of heaven on earth by God's grace. So much like the Jews in exile, there, there will be many cases um, where in our time of exile on this earth, we're going to suffer. Um, there, there's going to be times where we suffer grievances, we suffer hard circumstances, we suffer repercussions of sin. Um, and in all of these cases, we can rest assured knowing that there is one who set the perfect example and that is Jesus so he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. So not only is Jeremiah 29 pointing at our future citizenship, but it is looking toward the future of our suffering Messiah. And this is our last point. We follow the example of a patiently suffering Messiah. So you can go back and, and look at um, verse 11. So Jeremiah 29, 11, your classic coffee mug uh, scripture, maybe it's on your doormat at your front home, but we're going to put it in, into context here. <laughs> uh, so, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. So we're we're going to sound like a broken record this entire summer, and we've said it countless times that everything in the Old Testament, all the prophetic words, they're all pointing to Jesus. They're all pointing to King Jesus coming. 
So God sets the standard for his people as they're in exile in Babylon. To not be idle, to be a light in a place that only knows darkness, and to pray for the place that stands against all that God is for, and to do it while suffering for 70 years. So if we fast forward in the narrative about 600 years from the Babylonian exile, Jesus entered the scene to become an exile on this earth. And not to compare the the Jews to to Jesus, but I, I want us to see something here. Um, I want us to see just how scandalous the life of Jesus was. Scandal of grace, that is. So the Jews, this should be on the screen too. The Jews unwillingly went into exile, though they deserved it. Jesus willingly went into exile in a world that hated him. The Jews fell short of God's glory in exile, but God did not turn his face from them. Jesus did not fall short of God's glory in exile, yet God turned his face from him. And this is the one that we follow, Jesus, because the fullness of life is found in him. So Jeremiah 29, 11 points directly to our hope that is found in Jesus. And this is, how, this is how we get here too. Galatians 3, verse 13 says this, that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So Jeremiah 29, 11 and, and Frankly, quite frankly, Israel's history must be read in the context of God's purposes fulfilled in Christ. If we are in Christ, then all the horrors and judgment warned about in the prophets have fallen on us in the cross where we were united to Christ as he bore the curse of the law. That's what Galatians 3.13 is saying, and that's how we get to Jeremiah 29.11. That's how, that is how, um, so welfare, future, hope does not lie in the things that will turn to dust. So we don't wake up the day of our job interview and say, and I got this, because Jeremiah 29, 11. We don't wake up on, on game day and say, I'm gonna throw 20 touchdowns because Jeremiah 29, 11. It's like, no, that's, that's the, the complete wrong way to, to view Jeremiah 29, 11. It is not a verse of prosperity, but it is a verse of prosperity in Christ. Jeremiah 29, 11 speaks about the future hope that was already accomplished by Jesus. We already have it. So when we suffer, we look to Jesus. When we hurt, we look to Jesus. When we feel hopeless, we look to Jesus. So all of these circumstances should drive us to cherish the hope that is found in Jesus and Jesus alone because he experienced it. And he bore our sins on our behalf. He became a curse. He bore the curse of the law on our behalf. So if this, if this still seems confusing for us, I still don't understand the context of Jeremiah 29, 11 and how um, that's a, a word of prophecy towards looking ahead to Jesus. Um, this is it, that it was necessary for Jesus to become a foreigner in a land that hated him. It was necessary for Jesus to suffer during his life on earth. It was necessary for Jesus to be crucified and ultimately killed. So all of these things were necessary for us, but here's the catch, that Jesus didn't have to do any of it. But in his perfect love, he willingly went into exile, fully knowing the outcome of his time here on earth would be that of a bloody betrayal of the very ones that he created. And he did this so that we could permanently be reconciled back to God, that, we, that our sins could be fully forgiven, that we could be fully loved and fully forgiven. And this is why we call the gospel of Jesus the, the scandal of grace. This is why we follow the example of a patiently suffering Messiah. So welfare, a future, a place of no more suffering, hope is found in Jesus. And if you're still a little bit confused 
as to what this all means for us. Like, what is the gospel? What is the scandal of grace? Uh, This is it. That throughout the entire story of God, God's people rebelled against him, their creator. And God created man and woman with the idea that they would love him and enjoy him as their creator. God's perfect design for humanity was for us to worship him in perfect unity. So from the creation of Adam and Eve to where we are at thus far in the story of God, we see one common theme amongst humans, that we want to be the gods of our own lives. If we're really honest with ourselves, it feels good to be the gods of our own lives, to be in control. And we call this sin. So time and time again, we see God try to use imperfect, sinful humans to reconcile us back to himself. But humans, because we're imperfect and sinful, we fail. We still choose our own way. But time and time again, we see God warning us of the outcome of sin like we did earlier in Deuteronomy chapter 28. A perfectly just God, which God is, has to do something about sin. He has to punish sin. A holy God who knows no sin cannot dwell in the midst of sin. So what do we do? This is where Jesus comes in. Jesus, who is both perfectly man and perfectly God, came from heaven to earth as an exile to accomplish one thing that would set free all who are slaves to sin. During his time on earth, he experienced everything that we have ever experienced or ever will experience, yet he never once chose an option outside of God's design. He never once sinned. He was faithful to God. He was a friend. He was a brother, a servant, perfectly loving, gentle, joyful, restful, peaceful. And despite all of these good qualities Jesus had, those who did not know him wanted him to be crucified. Those who claimed to know God did not truly know God because they did not know Jesus. So Jesus willingly was taken captive by the ones who sought to kill him so that he could be the final spotless sacrifice for sin the sacrifice that would forgive the sins of the entire world and the sacrifice that would reconcile anyone who believes in Jesus and repents from their sin back to the one true God. The death of Jesus was, yes, the sacrifice for for the sin of the entire world, but it doesn't end there. Jesus rose from death to life on the third day, claiming that new life is found in the resurrection of Jesus. So when we repent of our sins and believe that Jesus is alive, we are new creations. We are brought from death to life in a spiritual sense and we can confidently say that we are forgiven of our sins and we can look forward to our permanent residency in heaven with the glory of God at its fullest. And this is the gospel. This is the scandal of grace. So ultimately, the, the promise of blessing during and, during and after exile in Jeremiah twenty nine eleven was made to Christ. It was fulfilled in his earthly sojourn and his restoration to his heavenly dwelling. That is his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. So to end, um, just recap. The best thing for our city is for us to desire God to be at work in it. Number two, we are citizens of another kingdom. Number three, we follow the example of a patiently suffering Messiah. I'm going to pray for us and we'll enter back into worship and as we are as we are singing as we're worshiping I just want to leave us with with one question um, like how can we be praying for our city a couple questions not one question but how can we be praying for our city and how can we seek the welfare of our cities and also ask God that that he would just break our hearts over the brokenness of Monmouth Oregon or wherever you are residing. 
let's pray.